The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am filling in for Kim Tebaldo today, who happens to be off. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, which is one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and by a telephone helpline, and I will repeat this number later in the show, but that number is 888-793-9355. And today we are talking about lung cancer, and November is National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We thought it would be um, a, a good opportunity to have this conversation in honor of that. This year, it is estimated that 224,000 people will be diagnosed with lung cancer here in the United States. About 116,000 of those cases are will be in men, with 108,000 cases in women. This makes lung cancer the second most common cancer in both men and women. This type of cancer also accounts for 27% of all cancer deaths and by far the leading cause of cancer death in both men and women. For a diagnosis that has such a big impact on all of us, there is still much that needs to be known about lung cancer. There are myths that need to be dispelled and research needed to still help people who are impacted by this diagnosis. And again, in honor of National Lung Cancer Awareness Month, today's show will be all about lung cancer, what it is, how it's diagnosed, the future of lung cancer treatment, and where to find support, education, and resources for those living with this diagnosis. So today, we have three very important guests with us. We have Dr. Corey Langer, Susan Mentel, and Ide Mills. Dr. Langer is the director of the Thoracic Oncology Program and professor of internal medicine at the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Dr. Langer specializes in lung cancer as well as head and neck cancers. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Langer. Thank you. Also with us today is Susan Mintel, the Senior Vice President of Research and Education with the Longevity Foundation. Susan has more than 12 years of experience working with researchers and clinicians to advance knowledge and options in oncology, infectious disease, and behavioral health. And Susan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Our third guest today is Ide Mills. Ide is a certified social worker with an expertise in oncology. She is also a health educator where she has developed programs to support people with their health care and also works to improve communication between patients and their health care team. 
In February of 2011, Ide was diagnosed with a stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer. And not eligible for surgery, Ide has been on chemotherapy or targeted therapy since shortly after her diagnosis. And Ide, we're so happy to have you here um, and sharing with us some of your experience. Well, thank you for having me. So, Dr. Langer, I'd like to start this first segment off with you, and let's start way back at the beginning and tell us about lung cancer. Are there different types? Are there differences um, in terms of the way those types of lung cancers uh, behave? Just ground us in lung cancer. Sure. Um, Well, when we speak of the lung cancer diagnosis, we really concentrate on two different issues. One is the appearance under the microscope. We call that the histology. And the other is the stage, the extent of the tumor. The staging system is based on three uh, specific tumor uh, traits, the tumor size and location, the nodal status, and whether or not uh, spread to other areas has occurred. And we call that the TNM staging system. The very, very early stage tumor might be T1 or T2, no evidence of node or metastatic involvement, that sort of individual could undergo surgery, whereas if they're spread beyond the chest to some other organ, some distant organ, it's generally not considered uh, in the realm of uh, surgery or resection. When it comes to the histology or the appearance on the microscope, two basic kinds exist. Small cell, which is actually a misnomer because the cells are actually quite large, and non-small cell. Small cell is uh, very tightly linked to cigarette smoking. Um, its incidence in the U.S. is declining. It used to be 15 to 20 percent. It's now about 12 percent overall. And the, uh, that specific diagnosis is generally treated with uh, chemotherapy or a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Non-small cell uh, is the lion's share, uh, over 85 percent of all diagnoses, further broken down into adenosquamous large cell, which are the uh, subtypes. But generally, their surgery, at least in earlier stage disease, has a role. Uh, for those that are locally advanced that haven't spread beyond the chest, will usually employ a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. And then for those that have advanced beyond the chest, this is really the realm where the newer targeted agents, potentially immunotherapy, may make a difference, along with standard chemo. Okay, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit more um, a little bit later in the show, but essentially two major types of lung cancer, small cell, non-small cell, those break out into additional cell types, and we are going to talk about that because that may impact the way a patient is treated. And then the other thing that patients need to be thinking about is um, how far advanced the disease is. And you had mentioned previous, is it confined to the lungs? Is it into the lymph nodes and other, other areas? Did I summarize that just quickly? You certainly have. Great. Thank you. Um, Susan Mantell, what are the causes of lung cancer and who is at risk for developing it? Well, in the lung cancer advocacy world, we like to say if you have lungs, you're at risk for developing lung cancer. Uh, And, you know, as Dr. Langer pointed out, smoking is clearly one of the cause, uh, you know, causes or risk factors. But being a current smoker is only one. Uh, First of all, those who are newly diagnosed right now, less than 40% are estimated to be current smokers. And then you have 10 to 15% who have never smoked at all. And then the rest are never are former smokers. So we're, we're continuing to learn a lot about risk factors and also how to reduce them, which I think is what everybody is particularly interested in. So in addition to smoking, which is just bad for your health, right? We'll agree that tobacco use doesn't do anybody's heart or other body parts any good. Um, radon is one of the risk factors. 
And as you may know, that's a radioactive gas um, released by uranium in the soil. And that can occur anywhere in the country. So it's a really good idea if you have a new home uh, or you're in the, up to the first three floors of an apartment building to have your home tested for radon. And the great news there is it's really easy to fix if you do have radon leaking in. Uh, and remediation is, is cheap and easy. And the EPA has a section of their website on radon testing and exposure. So that's one of the factors that is implicated for never smokers uh, and likely also to have an impact for all the rest of the population as well. Um, now, another risk factor is asbestos and other environmental uh, exposures like arsenic, chromium, nickel, soot, tar, other things that you might find in construction or chemical industries. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, that's another group, people who work with those kinds of carcinogens. Um, Air pollution. There was a big study that finally uh, came out, World Health Organization, published uh, in 2014, uh, and 2013, and I think as someone who's lived and worked in New York City, I know uh, you can see the air pollution. The soot is on your windowsills, and you wipe it down at least once a week, uh, and you can't help thinking, that can't be too good for my lungs if that's coming in through all the little nooks and crannies around my windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there, I think, you know, one of the things you can do is you can get one of those mega air filters to help improve the air quality internally. And that helps people who are asthmatic, too, and asthma is another risk factor mm-hmm. for lung cancer. Um, some people have quite a lot of family history of lung cancer. Um, I've been going back and forth with a woman whose brother and mother both died of lung cancer. Another one's been diagnosed, and so she's very interested in uh, screening, which I think we'll be talking about a bit later. And then if you've had radiation therapy... Uh, for something like Hodgkin's lymphoma or women with breast cancer who are treated with radiation after mastectomy. That can be a risk factor. And like most cancers, uh, being 65 or older puts you at higher risk. Not much we can do about aging, Uh, Mm -hmm. but that is one of the factors. Um, So, you know, there really are a lot of different uh, possible causes for lung cancer. And... Mm -hmm. I think it's been helpful to be able to learn more about that uh, in order to get broader treatment for the lung cancer population and just to really help people figure out where they can make changes uh, mm-hmm. that might have a positive impact and who should be paying more attention to screening. Mm-hmm. It's important Thank to know you. that it's not strictly a smoker's illness, uh, which is the, uh, the stigma that's attached to it. Right, and, and, and I do want to explore that. I'd, I want to I want to swing to you just quickly and, and have you share a little bit about your journey uh, with us. So you mentioned I was diagnosed in, in 2011. When I was diagnosed, it was already stage 4 uh, non-small cell lung cancer. So I was not a candidate for surgery uh, and have not needed radiation. So my treatment has been chemotherapy or targeted therapy to date. So um, I... Um, was, and I've been on treatment the whole time, but I was very fortunate um, in that I had a working knowledge of cancer and lung cancer specifically, 
I had family who work in the field and also have worked with um, many oncologists, oncology nurses, and social workers who could really be there as a guide and help me know where else I should turn and who to turn to. And that was very reassuring and something that I think, no, not everybody has access to. And um, even if you have one person that you can turn to for a resource, it's, it makes a big difference. Um, also, my work as a health educator uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, I knew about biomarkers and um, more specifically um, what tests needed to be done to determine if my type of lung cancer had a, had a mutation, um, which I think we'll talk more detail about um, throughout the show, but basically to determine my treatment and if there was some medicine specifically that would help me. Uh, so that um, all of this information, uh, in a way, made me feel a bit more in control, uh, and I was... I think it was reassuring to my family and friends as well. But I, I continue to lean on them for uh, when I'm making treatment decisions and kind of gather all my thoughts uh, together uh, before I make a, a decision. Um, but I'm, I'm also fortunate because I have um, oncologists on my treatment team who value that I want to be involved in my therapy and my treatment planning. Uh, and so... Knowing, while on the one hand I know only so much as a layperson, um, that, that can be hard to take. So I really have to strike a balance, and some days are easier to balance than other days. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. And we um, are going to follow up on both this idea of stigma, and then Ida, I want to get into a little bit more about your, your story uh, as well when we come back from a commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx, a subsidiary of Amgen. We will be right back after this commercial break when we'll hear more from our guests about lung cancer. I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. 
I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This is Linda House. I'm your guest host today, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who is the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Corey Langer, Susan Mintel, and Ide Mills about lung cancer as we recognize November as Lung Cancer Awareness Month. In our last segment, we talked about some of the basics of lung cancer and its causes, and I'd like to dig deeper into just a couple of things in this in this segment. And Dr. Langer, you raised the issue of the stigma associated with lung cancer. Could you say a little more about that? Well, for the majority of individuals diagnosed with lung cancer, um, tobacco was the cause, even though, ironically, as uh, Susan's pointed out, in this day and age, the majority at diagnosis are actually no longer smoking. So it's that association, the um, association between cigarettes and lung cancer, that's really led to the stigma, the notion that somehow this is preventable, that uh, uh, those diagnosed with lung cancer brought it on themselves when, in fact, it's really the tobacco industry that brought it on. Uh, that stigma is further pronounced in the 15 to 20% now who never smoked, but the assumption is they did. And so it's, it's, it's really a two-pronged uh, stigmatization that occurs, and we really need to go beyond the stigma. Mm-hmm. I think there's another kind of stigma that we've seen in lung cancer, too, that's made it... Um, difficult for people to come forward and get the optimum treatment. And that's the stigma of mortality. You know, when people tell someone they have lung cancer or their loved one has lung cancer, for many years people have said, oh, that's bad. You know, that's a death sentence. And lung cancer, there's so much going on now in terms of new developments and research, new treatment options, the fact that uh, we've proven the value of finding it early and having screening protocols in place that I think that screen that stigma of mortality that this is a hopeless cause is something we are able to make good headway against. So I think there's there's two kinds of stigma. There's the stigma of, you know, did you bring this on yourself, which is a terrible thing to say to anyone with cancer. But there's the equally damaging stigma, I think, when people feel like there's no point in trying to be uh, treated or trying to find it early. And I think that one, we're living in really exciting times for lung cancer with so much being developed and so many new options. I agree. I mean, we're, we're seeing new developments that certainly the general public and really most uh, patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer uh, at the very beginning uh, are not aware of. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Susan, why don't you just uh, talk first about some of the advances in diagnosis? Yeah, so, you know, one thing I think that's been um, gratifying, so I've been working in the lung cancer field itself about 10 years now, and when I first got in, there was still a discussion about did it even make a difference to find it early, which made no sense to me, right, because you find 
things earlier, you can treat them better. But we hadn't really had the proof yet. And then the National Lung Screening Trial came out, and it was really the largest screening uh, research study in the country on any cancer, and showed that, in fact, you could reduce deaths to lung cancer when you found it earlier. And now uh, different institutions are putting in place screening programs using low-dose CT. And screening is really more than a one-time picture taken of your lungs, but it it involves good follow-up. I think people need to know that. But that's a a great start. And uh, we just had the recommendation from CMS uh, that it would be covered uh, for high-risk populations. Now, the goal for groups like ours, and we invest quite heavily in research into early detection, is to be able to find biomarkers, so something in the blood or the sputum that people then can have tested to either to figure out whether they are high risk or after they've found something on the CT to um, have another option other than surgery for doing follow-up if it's what's called an indeterminate nodule, so something where you're seeing what uh, I like to call possible schmutz on your screen, and then you want to find out whether it's actually cancer or just air pollution lodged there, scar tissue. You know, there's a lot of things that could be showing up, but the fact that there are programs rolling out across the country I think is really exciting. And next step is to find, you know, a, a complement to it in terms of blood tests or other ways to test as well. There's work now being done with uh, aerosolized uh, aromatic hydrocarbons, basically looking at exhalations at breath and uh, right. trying to determine if there's a way to uh, detect uh, the malignancy earlier. Yeah. And uh, certainly there are paradigms now that exist to uh, essentially follow these nodules. So it's very small. You can afford to wait three, four months for a repeat scan and see if there's stability or not. So this has really revolutionized our understanding and approach toward uh, um, early detection. And if we can detect it early, obviously, we can uh, radically increase cure rates. Mm -hmm. And so some of the the tests that are typically used to diagnose would be x-rays, biopsies, those sort of things. And as we're on the, the conversation about sort of what's new in the last couple of years, Dr. Langer, could you, could you speak about some of the molecular diagnose, diagnostics that have been used and explain for our listeners what does that really mean? Sure. Um, first, a, a brief mention of the uh, films that we use. Uh, low-dose spiral CT minimizes the exposure, uh, the radiation exposure, and can detect lung cancers, as uh, Susan's pointed out, at a much earlier uh, stage. Um, We've coupled that now with PET imaging, which is done routinely to determine the extent of uh, the tumor, whether it may have spread to occult areas that we're just not uh, previously aware of. And uh, it it makes us much smarter about how to diagnose folks and how to stage them and make sure they get the appropriate treatment. In non-small cell, particularly in adenocarcinoma, which is probably constitutes half or more of those uh, diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. Uh, We are now witnessing the molecular revolution. Uh, We are uh, able to detect specific genetic changes, abnormalities that drive the growth of these tumors, Uh, EGFR mutation, ALK translocation. I realize the words are uh, very complex, but the concept is simple. These um, abnormalities on the tumor cell and the tumor cell surface 
make that tumor susceptible to certain proteins in the blood that will uh, specifically drive the growth of that tumor. If we can inhibit those receptors, we have new approaches, uh, oral medicines that can really make a major difference in um, controlling the tumor and uh, stabilizing it or better yet, uh, shrinking these tumors. These sorts of treatments were simply not available 10 years ago or beyond. we were uh, stuck in the realm of chemotherapy alone, and there, too, we've seen improvements, particularly in adenocarcinoma with more therapeutic options than we had in the past. But uh, the molecular revolution is here to stay. Uh, it affects 25 to 30% of all those uh, diagnosed with uh, non-small cell adenocarcinoma. And as time goes on, uh, we're discovering more and more molecular aberrations that are potentially uh, actionable. Mm-hmm which seems like that would be great news for patients. You could get to a level of specificity that we've never been able to get to before. Absolutely, but we've got a long way to go. Uh, We've not seen similar improvements in small cell, and we're just at the uh, starting gate when it comes to squamous cell malignancy, although there is a major effort nationally, sort of a a wedding of uh, the government and industry and uh, academic and community cancer centers nationwide to uh, really try to decipher uh, the molecular fingerprint of squamous cell and uh, determine appropriate treatments based on these specific uh, genetic abnormalities. Mm-hmm. So, Ide, can you share with us, you know, there's a lot of information, even for, I've been an oncology nurse for many years, there's a lot of information that we're swinging around here during these conversations. So, as a patient... How did you sort of break down all of these different steps of, I think I have cancer, I do have cancer, I'm going through these diagnoses, Um, just kind of talk with us or patients who are listening to this this show today about how to best do that? Uh, When I was first diagnosed, I knew that I knew that I had advanced cancer because of what the nurse said to me, telling me that they saw something in my bones. So I knew that we were already talking about a lung cancer that had spread to the bones, and that just put me in a different place than if I was only dealing with lung cancer. Um, But having that information and being able to um, first turn to family uh, to get more information was really a help for me. I I didn't run to the Internet. Uh, I was still in a state of shock. And I don't think, even with all my information of knowing that there are wonderful organizations like yours and Susan's and and many others, uh, or that the pharmaceutical companies had information about certain drugs or academic centers had information about cancer genomes, um, it was too overwhelming to start. So I I began by gathering uh, a list of questions. And some of my questions just kept repeating themselves. I'd make a list. I'd get some information. I'd make another list. Some questions would remain on the list. And I would just keep going from there. Um, Then um, there got to be a point where I I then was engaged with my oncology team. This was, at first, was, you know, still gathering all the information, going for future, going for additional tests to determine where else it may be, uh, and, and I didn't have a treatment plan yet. But once, once I had my oncology team set, I then had another whole list of questions, and 
uh, I had looked at clinical trials and the results of some of them, so I wrote little notes about them so I could ask the doctor, did this apply to me? Um, from the point of view of biomarkers, that was really critical because I, I knew that we were, my tumor was being tested for, excuse me, for one of these, um, for any of these biomarkers. I was not EGFR positive, so there was hope that I was ALK positive because you couldn't be one and the other. And Unfortunately, and I think this happens to many people, or it did back in 2011, um, they didn't have enough tissue to do the test again to be 100% sure that I was out positive. They were pretty sure, but they weren't 100% sure. And the reason that was really very important, because that was going to determine my treatment. And as Dr. Langer said, back in 2011, we didn't even have some of these treatments available. It's only been since 2011 that two treatments have become available for people who are ALK positive. I know that's only a small amount of the population with non-small cell lung cancer, uh, but in four years, less than four years, there's two new drugs to treat somebody with a very specific type of lung cancer. And, and I, that's pretty miraculous to me. So we waited, um, got more, t- we did another biopsy, uh, and, and sure enough, I was out positive. I stayed on my treatment plan, but um, when the time came that my disease progressed, I then went on the new, one of the new drugs. Great. Thank you. We have to go to a quick commercial break. Dr. Langer, when we come back, I want to have you um, sort of speak to our audience about ALK positive and the things that I've been going over and how that really applies to how lung cancer is uh, treated. So I want to give you a little heads up um, around that as well as our listeners to please join us um, after this quick commercial break to hear more about these advances in lung cancer. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer and this episode is sponsored in part by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. We'll be right back after this commercial break. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar, to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope. And help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda House, the Executive Vice President of External Affairs, standing in today for Kim Tebaldo, who happens to be off, and we'll be back with you next week. Today, we are talking with Dr. Corey Langer, Susan Mantel, and Ide Mills about lung cancer, and Dr. Langer, I wanted you to put a frame around the conversation that I teed up right before the break. So can you just answer for our listeners, when they have a lung cancer diagnosis and they're thinking about having their cancer treated, what are the molecular tests that every patient should make sure they have and why? Well, particularly in non-small cell, um, especially adenocarcinoma, are those who have never smoked or have a minimal smoking history regardless of the histology, regardless of the appearance under the microscope, they should be tested for EGFR and for ALK as a minimum. Uh, EGFR is uh, actually a, a set of mutations that occur in specific uh, chromosomes. About 90% of those that have EGFR mutation are sensitive to commercially available uh, uh, agents or oral medicine as opposed to chemotherapy uh, that work directly on the mutation. The response rates, that is the tumor shrinkage rates, uh, range anywhere from about 50 to 70%. And in some instances can be quite durable. We only knew, of, first knew about EGFR mutations 10 years ago. So before that, uh, we were really confined to standard uh, chemotherapy. And I don't want to denigrate that. We've made many advances with chemotherapy with uh, more effective, safer uh, regimens. But uh, EGFR was really the uh, prelude of the molecular revolution. Uh, ID's particular molecular um, uh, driver is called ALK or ALK translocation. We're not actually seeing mutation in the DNA, but the, a rearrangement of genetic material from one chromosome to another. That's a little bit less frequent, uh, 4 to 8% of uh, individuals with lung cancer as opposed to the 10 to 15% that we see EGFR, but it's no less actionable. We have uh, actually a set of agents uh, that are available uh, that uh, simply weren't uh, uh, even being developed five, six years ago. So before 2009, I had never even heard of VML4 ALK or ALK translocation. And this has really changed our uh, treatment paradigm. The chemotherapy doesn't go away. It's still in our back pocket uh, if uh, the oral agents aren't working. But we preferentially will treat uh, such individuals with pills. And uh, those pills uh, make a big difference both in uh, quality and quantity of life. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And Susan, I know that your organization funds a lot of research on these new treatment, diagnostic and treatment options. We do. Um, you know, and I just want to call out actually a couple other things. Um, Dr. Langer mentioned uh, a test for squamous or research being done on patients with squamous cell lung cancer. And those 
tend mm-hmm. not to have ALK or EGFR uh, mutations, but there's a really exciting new clinical trial approach called LungMAP for patients with squamous cell lung cancer where their mutations are being tested. So there's nothing available FDA approved yet, but there are lots of um, drugs being tested. And I think anyone with squamous cell lung cancer should know about LungMAP. Uh, go online to look up whether it's an option for them. And it's um, a way to study whether drugs are effective in people much faster than the traditional clinical research model. And then another really valuable resource, I think, is the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium. And again, they have their own website, which is GoLCMC. And there, they're matching up patients with adenocarcinoma. As Dr. Langer mentioned, the most prevalent kind of lung cancer uh, with clinical trials in EGFR, because that's still being studied, including how to overcome resistance, and HER2, and KRAS, and MET, and BRAF, and PIK3CA, and, you know, so there's a lot of options out there, even if you're not ALK or EGFR positive. Um, We're also funding research to try to figure out, um, I mentioned resistance, and trying to figure out how to keep people from becoming resistant to these agents, which work so well um, the majority of the time in the beginning, and then often, or most of the time, end up with people having resistance. And also looking at different ways to make other treatments more effective, like radiotherapy, which, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't work the way we'd hope in everyone either. How do you improve that? with combinations of other treatments. And what, what I see a lot out there, and Dr. Langer, you, um, the interest in your perspective is I see a lot of combinations of treatments being tried out now uh, in research, research studies um, so that we can, can beat back lung cancer uh, even in some of the later stages and really improve quality of life for people so we can live longer and better with lung cancer. Absolutely. Um, just in reference to ALK, there, uh, again, just in the last two to three years, three new agents uh, and others, but three new ones that are um, actively being developed uh, if and when the original agent, chrysotinib, which was the first approved, uh, stops working. So, or sritinib. Um, right, that was one of the new agents. Yeah. There are uh, uh, another agent called electinib, and yet another one that doesn't have a name yet from uh, uh, called AP two six one one three. It's an alphabet soup of uh, different agents, but the, yeah. the bottom line is. Uh, What's particularly remarkable uh, is the notion that we can uh, actually have activity in what we call the second-line setting. We never saw this previously. And these newer drugs may actually be able to get to parts of the body that uh, the original agents uh, have trouble accessing, uh, including the brain. So this um, is a big issue. We ultimately strive to uh, really break the genetic code of lung cancer so that every patient uh, can have their uh, particular molecular profile identified. That's still going to be a tough uh, uh, road to hoe. Uh, but it's uh, we're, we're getting there slowly but surely. And uh, we haven't even mentioned immunotherapy, which is probably much more broadly applicable, where we can actually help uh, potentiate the body's native immune system to fight cancer. And there's been a, a number of agents... Uh, Generally given intravenously over the last uh, investigated over the last couple of years, that seem to have activity in the core group of uh, 
one in six, one in five patients, independent of the appearance under the microscope, independent of the histology, whether it's adeno or non-small cell. So, again, an exciting new area of uh, therapeutic research. And the thing with immunotherapy, too, is right now there are over 7,000 openings for patients in immunotherapy clinical trials. So it's, it's being studied in many different populations, many different ways. But that's, that's a lot of opportunities to participate in the research and really get cutting-edge access to these new, um, this new area that's so exciting. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, so Susan, can you just give our listeners a, a sense of if they're interested in participating in research or learning more about research, how do they really educate themselves and how do they have those conversations with their healthcare professionals? Yeah, so I, I wish I could say our, our new website were launched already because I've actually put a lot of work into uh, a section about clinical trials and that'll be launching in two weeks. But there also are different ways to get educated um, in addition to talking to your doctors or your medical team about this and asking whether they are aware of any clinical trials. Um, There are a lot of different places you can go online. The one that's the broadest but sometimes a little hard to understand is clinicaltrials.gov, which is the um, government's site, and it has all of the clinical trials, not just lung cancer, that are going on around the body. Uh, around the body, yeah, around the country and around the body. <laughs> All those body parts. Um, but there are also um, the Coalition of Cancer Cooperative Groups, which is cancertrialshelp.org, has another way to organize the search and is, I think, a little more user-friendly sometimes. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about mutations and whether if you know you have a mutation or you think you may, Um, and want to find out more about getting tested, as I said, the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium. Uh, MyCancerGenome.org is another site. And then we have a clinical trials matching service. We um, partner with Emerging Med. And if you go to the Longevity website, you can get the information on how to reach um, a person to talk through this in case, you know, that may be easier for many people than having, um, you know, to scroll through different terminology that's hard to understand on the Internet. And if you call 800-698-0931, you can get someone that will help you navigate lung cancer clinical trials. So there's a lot of information out there. I think sometimes the hard part's just there's so much. How do you, how do you make sense of it? And those mm-hmm. are some options. Mm-hmm. It's important to speak to your healthcare providers, obviously, to your doctor and nurse. And uh, a good one will um, confide and say if uh, if they're uh, they don't have access to particular trials, they should be able to set you up with uh, the appropriate uh, institutions that do. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly if they they offer cutting edge uh, treatment that's not otherwise available. Mm-hmm. And I just and we've got a couple minutes before we go to break, but. Um, you know, we've heard uh, cancer, lung cancer can be treated with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy. Um, I believe surgery is still an option for uh, cancers that are diagnosed early. And then we, we're talking about clinical trials. And so I'm wondering if it, either in your experience as a patient or in your experience as a health educator, um, you know, what advice you would give to patients as they are thinking about clinical trials or speaking to their healthcare team about clinical trials? Well, I've participated in clinical trials, uh, and I would recommend to patients to learn as much as they can about it. And if the patient isn't in a, in a space 
to, to learn and is overwhelmed and distraught than to choose somebody that can help them learn about it. And uh, I think they really need to gather the information from one of the many resources Susan just mentioned, uh, put that together, and then uh, make your list of questions. Um, it, there's, a, there's a wealth of research uh, being, being tried uh, out there in different ways that clinical trials are working now, especially in lung cancer, and um, it, it really makes a difference. Uh, people need to know when making treatment decisions what all their options are, and clinical trials can be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. We have to go to our last commercial break. We'll be back after this with final words from our guests, particularly about support and education. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. We'll return with our final segment right after this break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This show has been filled with information on lung cancer, what it is, why it's special, how it's diagnosed, how it is treated. And this is a lot of information for patients to absorb. And we'd like to take this segment to spend some time with you, Eid, to understand what resources would be uh, available for patients and their families as they're going through a lung cancer um, journey. And, you know, one of the things that I think we have to talk about up front is uh, the cost of going through lung cancer. And I'd, I know you know, um, actually all three of you know, because you're advisors to the Cancer Experience Registry, lung cancer, but cost is a significant factor when people are thinking about their cancer experience. So, you know, I'd speak a little bit about um, some of the barriers that might be um, might be in place because of either real or perceived costs and um, ways in which patients can, can work with those uh, barriers. Well, you know, there's been studies done in the last few years around the cost of care and how that impacts a patient's uh, actual care and the amount of stress that is uh, increased due to their worry uh, of, of cancer care. So while they may put effectiveness of treatment first before all other factors, they may ignore the fact that they can't pay their rent, they can't uh, buy food, uh, they are having a hard time even driving back and forth to treatment. And all of these things weigh heavily on a patient but, and their family, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that increased stress or anxiety is something that they're talking about with their treatment team. And I think that their treatment team uh, needs to know. It's a hard discussion to talk about finances. It's still seems to be a taboo discussion, uh, but it needs to be brought up. Uh, and the cost of, it's, it's not just the cost of drugs or the cost of a test, uh, but that is a significant portion. But it's all those other out-of-pocket expenses and choices patients are making that may not be the best choice for them and their health care. And if they're talking with their doctor, their oncology nurse, or more specifically, their social worker, to say, I'm having a hard time. Are there places to go? They can help them. I recently read something about financial advisors um, or financial advocates that are helping in uh, cancer centers or even large private practices to um, help patients find the multitude of resources. So whether it's uh, cancer care or um, uh, the patient advocacy fund or uh, one of the other found foundations uh, that can help patients uh, with out-of-pocket expenses, uh, they need to know that there are resources available for them. There are many of the pharmaceutical companies have uh, access programs that if you fit into a certain guideline of financial need, they may be able to help with your um, accessing the drugs. But there are many advocacy organizations that are out there um, to help these patients get a handle on the cost. And, and that's just critical uh, in being able to make treatment decisions and being able to take care of themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. And and what about um, what about resources or tools for patients as they're making treatment decisions? Well, the um, I have to I have to say that the um, recent recently published seventh edition of the Frankly Speaking About Cancer Lung Cancer 
booklet is, I think, a very good resource. It's very, it's up to date, and uh, it can help people understand more about their disease and has uh, various different resources in, in the booklet. It's not a book that you read as many are from the various different cancer organizations. It's not one of those brochures you read front to back. You read it as you need it. But one of the, one of the uh, programs or resources that they refer to and is available online is the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, the uh, options to answers. Uh, I didn't get that right. Um, Open to Options, I'm sorry. The, the Cancer Support Community program called Open to Options can really help a patient and their family gather their questions, their concerns, their priorities, so that they have a resource to begin to uh, speak with their cancer care team and think about the information they need and what they need to share with their oncologist uh, and oncology nurse about the treatment and what's important to them because it's a dialogue. It's a two-way conversation. And I think that the Open to Options program is one where, whether online or talking to somebody live and, and, and talking about what your questions are, personalizes it because my questions were very different from the person sitting next to me in the cancer center. Uh, so I think that's really very helpful. And, and many of the cancer organizations have a variety of questions to ask your doctor or other resources to help patients kind of get a, uh, a handle on it. When I say patients, I mean patients and families. Um, they're, they're going through it all together, and they really need a wealth of resources to support them. And they're out there. You don't need to use all of them. You need to find the one that works for you and you feel a, a bond and a connection with. Great. Thank you. Dr. Langer, I'm going to come to you and just ask you if, if you have, um, if you've encountered any great resources that you typically will refer your patients to. We, uh, when it's clear that finances are going to be an issue, we immediately hook our patients up with uh, social service and uh, particularly when it comes to certain agents or medications that are unfortunately highly expensive. As uh, I point out, there are access programs that can make uh, uh, at least fill in the uh, the cost differential. Uh, frequently, there's insurance will cover a certain part of it, but the copays are monumental, and the copays alone can bankrupt individuals. So, this is a big issue. It's unfortunately an American-centric issue, probably more so than elsewhere in the world. But uh, something that really needs to be addressed. Uh, ultimately, at least when we make therapeutic decisions, it's the efficacy and the side effect profile that really drives our uh, treatment choices. Uh, cost, um, for better or for worse, is often a secondary consideration, but it's no less of a consideration. Um, my big beef is that uh, uh, any one of these cost equations can be altered at will by the uh, CEO of a pharmaceutical company with a keystroke on their laptop. You can't alter survival curves. You can't alter toxicity profiles. So it's something that we really need as a group uh, to advocate more to uh, help reduce the cost to make more agents more readily accessible to uh, all of those that are diagnosed with lung cancer. Thank you. And Susan, one minute. (laughs) Let us know what resources, whether it's related to cost or other resources, what resources do you find to be be valuable? And I know you mentioned a few already. 
I, I don't know if I have any additional ones beyond what's been covered. Um, I, I find, though, that, you know, we don't usually give a shout-out, but the government has some pretty good resources out there, too, to help understand some different aspects of things, including what's covered under the Affordable Care Act around back to clinical trials, but clinical trial payment, um, you know, which kinds of costs and things like that. So I would, um, you know, do a, a Google search, but not discount a site because it's FDA or NCI because they've really put some time into that. And ASCOcancer.net, I think, is a good resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, Cancer Support Community. We haven't talked a whole lot about the peer-to-peer support and also professional uh, having the opportunity to have professional support and um, belong to support groups. But, you know, it's uh, as I've said to people with cancer diagnosis, you're in, a, you're in a marathon, hopefully. You're not in a sprint. So having a real range of resources to take care of all of the different needs, I think, is vitally important. Great. Thank you. On that note, I will thank Dr. Corey Langer, who is the Director of Thoracic Oncology at the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Susan Mantell, good friend of CSC's and Senior Vice President, Research and Education for Longevity. And Ide Mills, also a great supporter of CSC's and a patient representative, but also an oncology social worker, um, an expert in healthcare communication, and just an incredible human being. So thank you for the three of you for uh, being with us. And I, I think this information is invaluable for those who are listening to our show. And a final thank you to our listeners for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Again, I'm Linda House filling in for Kim Thibodeau, the president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone telephone support. If you or a loved one you know has or is facing cancer, You and they do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org to find a location near you or call our telephone helpline at 888-793-9355 and all of our services are provided free of charge. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>